Hello, I'm Sean Finnegan, and you are listening to Restitutio, a podcast to get you thinking about biblical and historical Christianity, to challenge you to follow Christ, and to inspire you to lead a consecrated life. Although later Christianity interpreted the handful of texts that called Jesus God as evidence that he shared the same rank, substance, and age as the Father, a more Hebrew-sensitive reading of these same verses yields more organic fruit. Instead of bringing in complex Greek philosophy to distinguish person from being and divine from human natures, the Bible provides clear precedence for the idea that Jesus, as God's agent, can be called God because he represents him. Thus, we do not have two gods, but one God and his representatives, whether human judges, angelic beings, prophets, or the Messiah himself. Suddenly, centuries of harebrained distinctions and intellectual confusions dissipate like so much fog in the morning sun, and we are left with Jesus of Nazareth, God's man, to announce and enact the good news. This is now part 13 of our theology class, Jesus God's Supreme Representative. To get us started, Daniel, ladies and gentlemen, Cal Cagno. Thank you. Uh, Pastor of Glad Tidings in Font Hill, Canada. We're looking at Isaiah 9-6. This is a, a passage that uh, is attributed or said to be about the Messiah. Mm-hmm. In context, it's probably about something else in that time, but it's ultimately about the Messiah in prophetic terms. And it is, I'll read it, For a child will be born to us, a son will be given to us, and the government will rest on his shoulders, and his name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, Prince of Peace. So what's the difficulty here? Uh, well, the Messiah is called four different names here, as we see. Wonderful Counselor, one Mighty God 2, Eternal Father 3, Prince of Peace 4. So four different titles or names. And there's no difficulty uh, with the first and last titles. No, nobody has, I don't think anybody has a problem calling the Messiah Wonderful Counselor or Prince of Peace. But for uh, we who are uni- biblical Unitarians, we believe the Father alone is God. But we have a difficulty understanding why the Messiah is called Mighty God and Eternal Father. And just as an aside, Trinitarians should have a problem with Jesus being called, Messiah being called Eternal Father, because in the Trinitarian view, Jesus is not the Father. Mm. So, unless you're a modalist, exactly. Yeah, this is a modalist proof text. Yeah. So the solution, so you, we all understand the difficulty, like, if Jesus is not literally God, then why is he called Mighty God, and why is he called Eternal Father? Well, the solution is, or one solution that I uh, found uh, it's not my favorite, but it's an, it's an interesting solution. Um, that the first three titles are reference to God. By the way, I want to give credit. Um, I used ChristianMonotheism.com years ago to figure this passage out. I'm sure much of this is from some of the stuff you've written, Sean. Um, but this one, I think, I'm not sure if you, if you did or just knew, knew this because I read it. But in the uh, a translation of the Hebrew scriptures called the Stone Edition ah, of Tanakh. Yeah. Uh, it is an Orthodox Jewish uh, translation of the Hebrew Scriptures. They attribute the first three titles to God, 
and Prince of Peace to Messiah. So, um, wonderful, as they translate it, wonderful advisor, mighty God, eternal father are all three titles for God. I'll just read the translation. because So, uh, a child has been born to us, a son has been given to us, and the dominion will rest on his shoulder. The wonderful advisor, mighty God, eternal father called his name Prince of Peace. So Totally different. Yeah. That does solve the problem, but I think it's a bit of a stretch. I don't know the Hebrew well enough to, uh, in terms of how that works. I know with each individual t- title, but not how the grammar works. But So uh, let's just assume that all four titles refer to the Messiah, and then we have to figure out what Mighty God and Eternal Father means. So the phrase Mighty God is El Gabor in the Hebrew, and is not Almighty God. It's Mighty God, because Almighty God is a term for God. It's not used, as far as I understand, of anybody but God in the in the Scripture. That's El Shaddai. Yeah, very good. Yeah. So um, this is not Almighty God. It's El Gabor, which means Mighty God, and whoever is being referred to here, the Messiah, and we believe, is called God. Right. This is not too uh, much of a stretch because there are other people in the Bible who are called God. Moses was called God. The Davidic king was called God, and the judges of Israel were called God, mm-hmm. right? In Exodus and the Psalms. So, the term "mighty God" is, and, and there's a wonderful quote from the uh, Net Study Bible. Mm-hmm. Um, I can pull that out. Yeah, yeah. I'll just give you the conclusion first that that this is probably a reference to the fact that he is the Messiah is God's mighty representative, especially on in terms of defending Israel in a war type situation. So. What it's saying is that uh, he is a wonderful counselor and mighty God in how he will rule and strategize against Israel's enemies. That's what I said. But the Net Study Bible notes that the title Mighty God portrays the king as God's representative on the battlefield, whom God empowers in a supernatural way. They also state when the king's enemies oppose him on the battlefield, they are, as it were, fighting against God himself. So again... Jesus is mighty God in that he is representing God in defending Israel against her enemies. Uh, another way to translate it, as we'll see in a second, is divine warrior. It's not that he is God, he's representing God, and he's got divine attributes. Well. The next term is eternal father, which is the Hebrew word aviad. And the Net Bible states, Isaiah and his audience may have understood the term as royal hyperbole, emphasizing the king's long reign or enduring dynasty. So maybe a better translation, and we'll see this in a second, is father of eternity or father of the eternal age. In other words, Jesus as king, as the king who will be king in the millennium and beyond, or, or at least the millennium, like he's the one who produces that long reign. He's the producer of the eternal age. In fact, that's why he's then called Prince of Peace. He produces this eternal age, this long age of the kingdom, and he administers peace in that kingdom. Mm-hmm. Sar Shalom. Yeah, Sar Shalom, that's right. Prince of Peace. So, is anybody familiar with, uh, we, the, the Christadelphians wrote, wrote uh, or a Christadelphian wrote the rest of the scriptures, they have a translation by uh, Duncan Heaster, and uh, it's the New European Version, and it's, the, it's a wonderful translation of Isaiah 9-6, and it says, for to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government will be on his shoulders. His name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Divine Warrior, Father of the Eternal Age, and Prince of Peace. And so when you understand what these two terms mean, uh, Divine Warrior and Father of the Eternal Age, something like that, 
then there is no more difficulty because then we just understand that these are all references to what the Messiah will do in conjunction or, or in connection to uh, the kingdom. The government will rest on its shoulders. Okay. So Jesus is God's mighty divine warrior who is the father of eternity who will produce the eternal age which of course will happen when he returns and establishes God's kingdom. Excellent. Uh, just something to point out here. The JPS, you're probably familiar with, mm -hmm. Jewish Publication Society translation. I've got on the screen there. I love this. Oh, yeah. I love this. They didn't translate the Hebrew. That's awesome. Isn't that so cool? So for a child who's been born to us, and it's kind of a weasel thing to do because it's like yeah, avoiding the issue, but, it, it, but, it, but I think it's on, uh, honestly awesome because of chapter 7 and chapter 8, which I'll explain in a second here because I want to roll into Matthew one twenty three. For a child is born unto us, a son is given unto us, the government is upon his shoulder, and his name is called Pele Joez El Gibor Abiyad Sar Shalom. As in one word? That's his name. It's a name sentence. Okay. Now, if you look at the previous chapter, Isaiah 8, there's a guy here named Mehershal Hashbez. If you look at chapter 7, verse 14, there's somebody here named Emmanuel. So chapter 7 of Isaiah, you have a named child, Emmanuel. What is that name? It means God is with us. You get to chapter 8, you have a named child. Swift to the booty, speedy to the prey. Then you get to chapter 9, you have a named child with this big, long Hebrew name. Mighty God, Eternal Father, Prince of Peace, Wonderful Counselor. Sorry, I forgot the first one. I'm on board with everything you said. I'm just adding this as another uh, way of thinking about names. Your name, as your Hebrew name, does not indicate who you are necessarily. It might indicate who your God is. Think of the name Elijah. How would you translate that? The Lord is God. Yeah, or my God, right? My God. Yeah, Eli, yeah. Yeah, so you have, you have this name right here. This is sort of a combo of Eli, which is possessive. It means my God. And then you have Yah, which is the shortened form of Yahweh. So the kid's name is literally my God, Yahweh. My God, Yah, come for dinner. I mean, can you imagine calling your kid that? And yet nobody thinks Elijah's God. His name literally means my God, Yah. Daniel, God is my judge. Right. Well, and then he gets a... Daniel, a lot of these L's, this L is always God in the, in the Hebrew names, right? Yeah. So God, my judge, is what it says. God, my judge, go clean your room. <laughs> right? I mean, this is what these kids' names were. What about uh, Abijah? Very similar to Elijah. This is my father, Yah. Avi. Right? Avi. Or you've got um, just the guy named Eli, right? Eli. The, he's the original Humpty Dumpty. He was a big guy who sat on a wall who took a big fall. And His name is literally my God. Nobody in all of Christian history has thought to say he is part of God's nature, the Godhead, right? And this is just how Hebrew names work. So here, here's another one, Emmanuel, right? You see the L there? That's God. So, and then Emmanuel... Is, is, uh, means with us. So this person's name is God with us. We would typically translate it, you just throw the verb to be in there, God is with us. Something like that, or God among us. Now, this is all relevant to Matthew one twenty three, which is a text that I didn't get to last time. But 
Isaiah 9.6 and Matthew 1.23 are similar in that they're both names of a child applied to Jesus. Okay, so that's, that's why I kind of thought maybe we'll just treat them together. But just so you can see it for yourself, Matthew, uh, I just tried to get the JPS to give me Matthew 1.23 and I got an error. Uh, JPS is a Jewish Bible, so they don't have Matthew. We're working on that. Yeah, we're working on that. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. Now, just to be clear, Emmanuel was the name of a child in the time of Isaiah. His, his birth and uh, early childhood signified the end of political problems for Israel with uh, Pekah and Remaliah. You remember that whole thing there with those guys? Uh, one was... I forget which was who, but the northern kingdom of Israel and the other one was Syria. Yeah, yeah so Pekah and Remaliah were giving the king in Judah a hard time. And it's like, by the time this child, Emmanuel, grows to be a certain age, then these two kings will not be bothering you anymore. It's a prophecy. It was fulfilled in the time of Isaiah. And then Matthew is looking at this birth of Jesus, and he's like, this is just like that. And that's more what the word fulfilled in the Gospel of Matthew means. It's like an echo of something that happened before because what this child signified in Isaiah's time was if people were asking the question, is God with us or not? This child is to answer, God is with us. He is with us. Think about the time of Jesus. It's a dark time. The Romans are dominating. There is no hope of independence. They've lost the promised land. They're not in control of it. Is God with us or not? Jesus is born. Yes, God is with us. And th through this child, he's going to save us, which is what Jesus means. Uh, so, so, something about salvation. Yehoshua, yeah, well, yeah. Yah salvation or something like that. Or Yehovah, depends on how you pronounce it. So that's Isaiah 9.6, Matthew 1.23. Do you get you know how to think about that a little bit? All right, now for um, what follows, I think what I'll just do is work through this, this handout with you. Okay, and I want to present the principle of agency, also called representational deity, um, and it's the idea that a human or an angel can be called God because that person represents God, not because they actually are divine by nature, but because they're bearing his authority. So I have in here for you on page, page one, this is in the uh, document, Explanations to Verses Commonly Used to Teach that Jesus is God. Terrible title. You see where it says Brown Driver Briggs Hebrew Lexicon on the right column there? So this is the entry in the BDB under Elohim, which is the word for God. It says the following. Definition 1. Plural in number. A. Rulers. Judges. Either as divine representatives at sacred places or as reflecting divine majesty and power. How's that? <laughs> so definition one for Elohim under the BDB says that this is somebody who is a divine representative or reflects divine majesty and power. Uh, look at the, and then they have other definitions like the gods and the nations, and then definition three is the true God and so on. Definition four refers to Yahweh the God in, in truth. Okay. Then you have Freeberg, the Greek dictionary on the word theos. Look at definition number five. It says figuratively, the word theos, the word God, can mean 
of persons worthy of reverence and respect as magistrates and judges. See John 10.34. Of the belly, when the appetite is in control. <laughs> God. Lowercase. Philippians 3.19. So, the word God doesn't have, to be ref- doesn't have to refer to Yahweh, the one true God, or even a divine being. It can refer to someone who is a magistrate, someone who is a judge, someone who's worthy of God's respect, God-like respect and honor, and that sort of thing. Thayer. Here's a third, just to show you I'm not like cherry-picking dictionaries here. I mean, this is another dictionary. This is a Greek dictionary. This is not a the- <laughs> it's just a Greek dictionary. Theos, it says, uh, general appellation for deities. Number two, whether Christ is called God must be determined from John 1.1, 1, 1, 20, 1 John 5.20, Romans 9.5, Titus 2.13, Hebrews 1.8, etc. The matter is still in dispute among theologians. <laughs> so this is uh, really a fun little entry here. And the discu- see the discussion on Romans 9.5 by Professors Dwight and Abbott, da-da-da-da-da. Look at number three, only true God. And then number four, this is one that's interesting under Theos here. Theos is used of whatever can in any respect be likened to God or resembles him in any way. Hebraistically, there's a word for you, Daniel. Hebraistically equivalent to God's representative or vicegerent of magistrates and judges. John 10, 34, Psalm 82, and so on. Can you look up that word for me, vicegerent? Uh, hmm. I think it means somebody that represents I've heard the ruler. Regent, but there, well, there's there's two, two different words. Vicegerent, person exercising delegated power on behalf of a sovereign or ruler. Oh, that is so good. That is so good. Say that again. Person, do it again. Do it again. A person exercising delegated power on behalf of a sovereign or ruler regarded as an earthly representative of God or a God, especially the Pope. Well, or Jesus. I mean, Jesus is way better than the Pope. I mean, Jesus, think about it, he's a deputy, he's a representative, he's somebody that's been given the authority on earth to do stuff on God's behalf. It it comes from the Latin office and to carry on. Can you you read the Latin word? Is it G-E-R-A-R-E? Gerere. G-E-R-E-R-E. Oh, okay, Gerere, okay, yep. These lexicons, look under uh, that definition there on page two, these lexicons ably demonstrate that there is a legitimate secondary or figurative sense that applies to the word God. Humans are called God in the Bible, but this could mean that the person is not actually a distinct God from Yahweh, the true God, but one who represents him to the people. All right, so look, I have some Old Testament verses for you here. Exodus 4. You can see that God here says to Moses in verse 16, Moreover, he shall speak for you to the people, and he will be as a mouth for you, and you will be as God to him. This is God talking to Moses about Aaron. Aaron is going to be his prophet, and Moses is going to be God. God says Moses is God to Aaron. That's not confusing, is it? <laughs> and then, so what does that mean? That's functional. Moses is telling Aaron what to say. Aaron is acting as the prophet who speaks to Pharaoh, right? So that's, that's how the relationship works. Exodus 7, 1, Then the Lord, Yahweh, said to Moses, See, I make you God to Pharaoh. Actually, the word as is not there in the Hebrew. It just says, I make you God to Pharaoh. 
We understand what it means, right? He says, I make you God to Pharaoh, and Aaron shall be your prophet. You shall speak all that I command you, and your brother Aaron shall speak it to Pharaoh. So God's deputizing Moses as God to, to Pharaoh and to, yeah. Exodus 21, these are, uh, these are ones that uh, can sometimes be hit, hidden by transla translation. But if the servant should declare, I love my master, my wife, my children, I will not go out free. Then his master must bring him to the judges, and he will bring him to the door of the doorposts, and his master will pierce his ear with an awl, and he shall serve him forever. The word translated judges here is the word Elohim. It's the word God. They translated it judges, though. And I don't know what translate. This is probably NASB. Translated it judges because that's what it's talking about. It's talking about human representatives. And that's not the only place. Exodus 22, 8 and 9, same thing. If you look at verse 9 there, for every breach of trust, or verse 8 as well. If the thief is not caught, then the owner of the house shall appear before the judges to determine whether he laid hands on his neighbor's property. Once again, it's the word God. There is, an, there is another Hebrew word for judges other than Elohim. But the translators recognize this is one of these cases where the Bible is using the word God to refer to people that are acting in God's stead. Then we get to the really juicy one, which is Psalm 82. And this is somewhat disputed. There are two very different interpretations of this. I don't, where, where do you come down on this one? Uh, more recently, uh, that these are supernatural beings. Right, yeah. I think I'm leaning in that direction these days as well. Look with me on page three. God takes a stand in his own congregation. He judges in the midst of the gods, is what it actually says in Hebrew. How long will you judge unjustly and show partiality to the wicked? Verse two. Verse three. So, okay, so verse 2 says they're judging, so that's why Jesus brought it up, because I said you are gods, talking about the judges. Um, whether they're spiritual or not, I think is a side point. Let's take a look at uh, John 10 together, page 5 in your uh, handout. Your Bible's looking like a Dustin Smith Bible at, at, with all hmm. those uh, pen marks in it there. You know, it, there's a, a cliche saying, a Bible that looks like it's falling apart usually belongs to someone who's not. So can you read for me John 10, 31 to 39? The Jews picked up stones again to stone him. Jesus answered them, I show you many good works from the Father, for which of them are you stoning me? The Jews answered him, For a good work we do not stone you, but for blasphemy and because you, being a man, make yourself out to be God. Mm. Jesus answered them, Has it not been written in the law? I said, You are God's. If he called them gods, to whom the word of God came, and the scripture cannot be broken, do you say of him whom the Father sanctified and sent into the world, you are blaspheming, because I said I am the Son of God. If I do not do the works of my Father, do not believe me. And if I do them, though you do not believe me, believe the works, so that you may know and understand the Father is in me, and I in the Father. Therefore, they were seeking again to seize him, and he eluded their grasp. Perhaps it would have been helpful to start with verse 30, uh, but that's the one we looked at last time where it says, I and the Father are one. Jesus said that, and I made the case that he's saying we're unified in purpose or function. Here, in the very next verse, it says the Jews picked up stones to kill Jesus because they misunderstood him to say, Verse 33 at the end, you, being a man, make yourself out to be God. 
So if we interpret Jesus when he says, I and the Father are one, as him claiming to be God, then we're lumping ourselves in with those who want to murder Jesus. Mm. I don't want to be lumped in with those people. But it's interesting. It goes from picking up stones and wanting to kill him to down in verse 37, uh, verse, excuse me, verse 39. Therefore, they were seeking again to seize him or arrest him. There's another translation of that. And he eluded their grasp. Look, seizing somebody and killing them with stones are two different scenarios. You, you could arrest me. I live another day. You throw stones at me until I'm dead. That's it. <laughs> so whatever Jesus said in between verse 31 and verse 39, whatever's in between these two, diffuse the situation sufficiently that they no longer were going to kill him. They were just going to seize him or arrest him. All right. So that's my point for saying Jesus is diffusing by explaining what he thinks his relationship is to the God. And it's so, it's so interesting. And it's so Johannine. It's the sort of thing you see in the Gospel of John a lot. Where Jesus says something, his critics misunderstand him, and they ask a question, and then instead of answering the question, Jesus makes it worse. It's a standard pattern. You see it over and over in the Gospel of John. And Jesus states very clearly in other places why he does this. He says, you don't cast your pearls before swine. And he says, you know, you're, you're, you, they don't want to know. So he's not going to give it to them. To his disciples, he's going to explain things. But to his critics in public, they're going to go one way, and he's like, you know what? It's even worse than you thought. And, and push them even further in that direction to confuse them, to show them how absurd they're being in the situation. That's why he spoke in parable. That's right. That's right. And Jesus is not doing that to be difficult in general. He's doing that because he's trying to follow his own teaching, which is you don't cast pearls before swine. These people did not have the spiritual hunger, so he's not going to give them spiritual food. Look at verse 33. Again, we start you making yourself out to be God. Verse 34, Jesus answers them. Jesus could just come back and say, I'm not God. Come on, that's ridiculous. He, he kind of does that in uh, chapter 5. They're like, oh, you're making yourself equal with God. And he says, the son can do nothing of his own. Right? But in this chapter, he's like, yeah, I am God, and so are you. Didn't you read the law? <laughs> right? It's a totally obtuse answer to an obtuse question. Uh, verse 34. You saw a Shawshank Redemption? Yeah, that's what I'm saying. I'm Don't be obtuse. Did you call me obtuse? <laughs> yeah, yeah. What did it mean? Slow to learn, slow to understand. Yeah. Yeah. Verse 34, we're getting silly again. Jesus answered them, Has it not been written in your law, it's a, in this case a general reference to the Old Testament, because this is not actually in Torah, this is in the Psalms, which is the uh, Ketuvim, which is the third division of the Hebrew Bible. Uh, anyhow, verse 34, Has it not been written in your law? I said, You are God. So that's a direct quote from Psalm 82, which we could go back and look at and figure out Psalm 82. Or we just look at what the next thing Jesus said here. The next thing Jesus said here is, and that's the point he's wanted to make, if he called them gods to whom the word of God came and the scripture cannot be broken, do you say of him whom the Father sanctified and sent into the world, you are blaspheming because I said I am the Son of God? His point is, look, the, he called them gods because they had received the word of God. Jesus says, the Father has sent me, He has sanctified me, and sent me into the world, and you're mad because I said I am the Son of God? Jesus is using this text in a really interesting way here. Now, 
what I would say is that there is precedent throughout the Hebrew Bible for humans to be called God. We saw it with Moses twice, Exodus 4, Exodus 7. We saw it with the judges in chapter 21 of Exodus and also chapter 22. Now, flip back a page. We find the same phenomenon, this is page 3, in Psalm 45. The same exact phenomenon where a human ruler is called God. And it's clear that this person is not God. This is just a regular human being who is in a position of authority over God's people. Look at this, Psalm 45. My heart overflows with a good thing. I address my verses to the king. My tongue is the pen of a ready writer. You are fairer than the sons of men. This means you're good looking, right? Grace is poured upon your lips. Therefore, God has blessed you forever. Skip to verse 6. Your throne, O God. He's still talking to the king. I didn't quote verses 3, 4, and 5. You go back and read it yourself. He's still talking to the king. The whole time the psalmist is addressing the king. And this becomes clear in a second. Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. A scepter of uprightness is a scepter of your kingdom. You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore, God, your God. So now God has a God. It's getting weird, right? Therefore, God, your God has anointed you with the oil of joy above your fellows. And skip to verse 9. King's daughters are among your noble ladies. At your right hand stands the queen in gold from Ophir. This is talking about a king who is standing with his bride, probably on a wedding day. This is a royal psalm. And he calls the king God. And then he says, and God, your God has anointed you. And, you know, the Israelites are as fiercely monotheistic as it gets in the ancient world, right? I mean, maybe Muslims are more so, but they're like, so many centuries later, it's not even really comparable. There's no problem with this. They don't have an issue with this. This king is called God, and they don't have any problem with it, because they recognize that this God has a, a God, and that's the true God, right? So you have to think about that a little bit. Look at page four. This explains it really well. I give you two quotes, one from the NET Bible again, which you can see I quote a lot because I think it's very good. And the other is from the Not Inspired Version. <laughs> you didn't think that was funny, huh? The, no, it's the New Internet. Okay, okay. Well, it's getting late. The other one's from the New International. You see on page four there? Look at the first one. Uh, this is a study note 16 from the NET on Psalm 45, verse 6. It says, Oh God, the king is clearly the addressee here as in verses 2 through 5 and 7 through 9. Rather than taking the statement at face value, many prefer to amend the text because the concept of deifying the earthly king is foreign to ancient Israelite thinking. However, it is preferable to retain the text, don't change the Bible, let the Bible change you, and take the statement as another instance of royal hyperbole that permeates the royal psalms. Because the Davidic king is God's vice-regent on earth, the psalmist addresses him as if he were God incarnate, God in the flesh. God energizes the king. For, this is not talking about Jesus. This is just talking about an Israelite king at this point. God energizes the king for battle and accomplishes justice through him. A similar use of hyperbole appears in Isaiah 9-6, where the ideal Davidic king of the eschaton is given the title Mighty God. Okay, so, and these people, they believe in the Trinity, but they're giving us a perfectly good explanation for how to interpret this verse without the Trinity. Look at the next one there, NIV Study Bible in, on Psalm 45.6. Possibly the king's throne is called God's throne because he is God's appointed regent. 
But it is also possible that the king himself is addressed as God. The Davidic king, the Lord's anointed, because of his special relationship with God, was called at his enthronement the Son of God. In this psalm, which praises the king and especially extols his splendor and majesty, it is not unthinkable that he was called God as a title of honor. This is the NIV Study Bible. Come on! Doesn't get better than that. Hebrews 1.8, John 20.28, and John 1.18. Each of these texts calls Jesus God. And so the question is, considering the fact that the rest of the Bible identifies the Father of Jesus as the only true God, how in the world do we explain these three verses, Hebrews 1.8, John 20.28, and John 1.18? I suggest to you that we just cruise in order here and look at Hebrews 1.8 first. Okay? And when we look at Hebrews 1.8, what we find here is a quotation of Psalm 45.6, which we just looked at. And that's where the psalmist calls the king of Israel God. Not because he is divine in nature, but because he's standing in the highest level of authority in the entire nation, and he is representing that authority of God himself, who thinks, by the way, that he is the king of Israel. God thinks he's the king of Israel. So he has a human representative or a vicegerent or vice-regent, whichever way you want to go with it, very similar. I looked up, they mean the same thing. And one is a misuse of the other. But okay, so which one is the real one? I think the one with the G in the middle. Okay. Yeah. Vice-gerent. Yeah. Gerent, gerent, I don't know how to say it. Where's Shaliach? Shaliach, there you go. Representative, his deputy, his ambassador, his agent, is at the top, that person is able to be called God, not because of his substance, being God, but because of his function, is standing in for the authority of God over the people of Israel. And look, if you can call a Davidic king who's at his wedding with a, some woman with the gold of Ophir on her, if you can call that guy God, how much more can you call the ultimate Davidic king, the, the Messiah himself, God, in the same way that you called that ancient Israelite king god. So that's, that's really the case here. And look at it. That's what exactly we see in Hebrews 1.8. But of the Son of Jesus, he says, Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. The author of Hebrews quotes Psalm 45, 6 and 7 and says, This is talking about Jesus. Okay? And this is a typical Jewish interpretation of how you use the Old Testament. That doesn't mean it wasn't also talking about somebody else before. Okay? I think it's pretty clear it was talking about somebody else before, but now it's being applied to Jesus. Okay, now Midrash. Right, so if, if it was already uh, applicable there, how much more would it be applicable to someone who is even more the ideal king of Israel? That's what the Messiah is, the ideal king of Israel. So Hebrews 1.8 is this instance of uh, quoting Psalm 45, which is an instance of agency or representational deity, and it gets applied to Jesus. So Hebrews 1.8, to me, is like one of the easiest verses anywhere on this subject because the author of Hebrews is just doing the same thing as what the psalmist was doing. They're calling a human God because they represent God. Plain and simple. Now, John 20.28 20, is much more susceptible to different interpretations. In fact, I have, I have listed out for you, I think, seven possible interpretations. Yeah. But I'll pull up the verse right now. Anyhow, so you see it there. John 20, we only have five minutes, so sadly, you know, 
we're limited. But I already made the case, and you have the paper here if you want to read further into it. But John 20, 28, Thomas says he sees Jesus resurrected. He says, my Lord and my God. Here are the options. This starts on page 7. Option number one, polytheism. Thomas is saying that Jesus is God. He already believes that the Father is God, and he believes in two separate gods. Very unlikely. Option number two, modalism. That's where Jesus, Thomas thinks Jesus is the Father. Option number three, ontological. Thomas is identifying Jesus as sharing the same substance as the Father. That's an anachronistic. That's, a, that's using later philosophy and explanation and importing it into an earlier time. It's very unlikely that would be true. Uh, figurative. This is better than I gave it credit for at the time I wrote this. <laughs> Maybe another way to say this is God in Christ. God in Christ. This is the Kermit Zarley approach. I don't know if you ever heard of Kermit Zarley. In his book, this is what he argues for. So this is the idea that two weeks before, Philip had asked the question, show us the Father. And Jesus said, have I been so long with you? You do not believe? And, and he says, do you not believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in me? The words that I say, I do not speak on my own authority, but the Father abiding in me does his works. So Jesus claims at the Last Supper that God is in him. They don't recognize it, but he's claiming it. And now here, Thomas sees Jesus in his resurrected state, and he recognizes that he's seeing, he's standing before my Lord, but also my God, in the sense that God is in him in this John 14 kind of way. Take it or leave it. Then you have political subversion, which I think is not very attractive because it assumes a very late, you're injecting later political situations and you're putting it on the lips of Jesus in a sort of like not very authentic way. But there is a Roman emperor at the time that a lot of people say the Gospel of John was written, which is like the 90s, I think, called Domitian, and he was called Lord and God. And so some people are suggesting that what John's doing is he's politically subverting Domitian's title and giving it to Jesus instead. Now, if you think about Domitian, he's a human Roman emperor. He's not an angel or a divine being. So it's kind of like an interesting hypothesis. And then you have the last one. You always put your favorite one last, right? Which is representational, that, that Thomas is recognizing that Jesus is the Messiah and therefore can properly be called God in a messianic sense because he represents God. He is at the top of the triangle of rulers. There's God. Well, obviously God is at the top of everything, but then out of all the other rulers, you have the Messiah at the top and then you have uh, others who are going to be under him, spiritual beings after his ascension. And then after that, you have human rulers and, and everything else. And then regular people. All right, so that's just a little spiel on John 20, 28. If you want the full scoop, read the, the full article there. If you find that helpful, hopefully you will. As far as John 1.18 goes, I'll just say to you, there are two manuscripts. One of them says, no one has ever seen God. The only God who's at the Father's right hand has made him known. Or the other way to go with it is no one has ever seen God. The only Son who is at the Father's right hand has revealed him. Either way it goes. If you, if you say it refers to Son, you don't have a problem. That's like the Holman Christian Standard Bible says Son. 
Okay? If you say he's calling Jesus God there, then it's right back to the same thing we've been talking about the whole time. Jesus can be called God in the Bible because he represents God, because he's God's agent, because he's God's Messiah, he's God's king, and it's really through him that God rules. Okay, does that make sense? I mean, even if you don't agree with me, does it make sense? Okay. Thanks for tuning in to this class. Just before closing out here, I wanted to mention we have a big event coming up that you're all invited to called Converge. It's happening August 2nd to the 4th, and I'm really thrilled to announce this exciting new event happening this summer. I've been working hard with the planning committee, led by the indefatigable Jerry Weirwell, to coordinate a massive gathering of believers from a whole range of monotheistic Bible-believing groups. We have just finished activating the registration process, and you can now sign up at convergefest.com. The weekend, like I mentioned, is August 2nd to the 4th, 2019, and includes Bible teachings, powerful praise music, lots of festive family fun on Saturday afternoon, and we'll have a full kids program so you can bring your whole family to meet the extended family of God. Our dream for this one-time event is to have a mini-kingdom celebration where we can meet and encourage our fellow brothers and sisters in the faith. We're holding this festival at the beautiful campus of Hiram College in Ohio, near Cleveland. We chose this location to make it possible for many people to drive in from all over the United States and Canada. I hope to see you there at Converge this summer. Please sign up if you are interested in coming. This is one weekend you won't want to miss. Please spread the word to your family, friends, and on social media. Converge will be particularly special for those of you living in areas without many others of like-minded faith to fellowship with. You can get more details about the main speakers as well as housing and registration at convergefest.com. And I hope, to, I hope to see you there. I think it's going to be a great time. Additionally, Mark Taylor wrote in on Podcast 45, Talking with Jesus by John Courtright. And he said, The fact that the Lord Jesus is the proper recipient of prayer necessitates that he is God, for to know the hearts of all from which all prayers from people come from is known to God alone. 1 Kings 8.39 Well, Mark, thanks for writing in. Hearing prayers is certainly available to not only God, but also his Messiah, if God empowers the risen and ascended Jesus to hear those prayers. Now, of course, I do agree that at the time of the writing of 1 Kings 8.39, Jesus was not in this position yet, and he had not yet been put at God's right hand, and he had not yet been made the head of the church and did not yet have the high priestly role as intercessor. So at that time, God alone was he who heard prayers, but now God has uh, enabled Christ in a new and exciting way, and, you know, we have to to be careful not to read the Bible as if it's flat. Um, There's development in Scripture, and we have to, to be keen to notice that Jesus has been exalted in an unprecedented way Uh, In places, especially I'm thinking of like Ephesians chapter 1, Colossians 1, Hebrews 1, that Jesus is not the same as just a prophet. He's been elevated to an incredibly high status. In fact, the highest position in all the universe next to God himself. Well, thanks for writing in. That's all I have time for today. We'll get to more of your comments next week. And remember, the truth has nothing to fear.